Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Mark and Sarah talk about songs. 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 Oh yes, it's our 177th attempt to talk about songs i say that like we fail every time and maybe some of you <laughs> think we do we, do. <laughs> we didn't do so well last week but we're bringing it back around folks we're still happy though i am your host mark blankenship and with me as ever is sarah d bunting hello sarah oh i didn't get an adjective this time oh yeah, wait right? hold on and with with me as ever is the my <laughs> co-host the crispity crunchitious Sarah D. Bunting. <laughs> yes, I like it. Uh, Sarah, uh, what have we got on tap for today? Um, well, many, many moons ago, when uh, God and this podcast were both children, uh, Dave L. asked us to talk about any Rufus Wainwright song. And uh, as we were mulling it over uh, between us, it took us almost no time at all to settle on cigarettes and chocolate milk. Uh, so let's hear a clip and then discuss. talk about this particular rufus song well let me just iris out to say i think that rufus rainwright is a goddamn genius and his music is so deeply satisfying to the very middle of my soul i think that his ability to write beautifully about unbeautiful things is so Mm -hmm. captivating And this song is a perfect illustration of that because this is a beautiful song with a bouncy, catchy melody that is ultimately about his addiction to substances. And he has this wit and this irony that dances around all of that. But then the reason I pulled this particular clip is because you hear him say, and then then there are all those other things that for several reasons we won't mention. So what this whole song really is, is I have an addictive personality here you go. And the fact that he is able to uh, talk about that through the lens of something pleasant and something beautiful and with humor and wit, to me, says that he's an incredible person in the world in terms of what he can make us think about through his art. And at the end of the day, also, that bouncy piano line, I'm never mad about that no matter what the subject is. So you add all those things together and you get a song that I think really encapsulates his appeal. I agree. Uh, Going back to something that you were just talking about, I think there is a um, 
not irony exactly, but he does do a good job of, um, like, there is this melodrama to the delivery, Mm, mm -hmm. to the musical delivery here, which he is also winking at. And I have always enjoyed um, learning, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, as I get more familiar with a given album or a given song, that while while his emotion is genuine and usually somewhat blue tinged i would say mm-hmm. he also has this uh anthropological or scientific remove from the emotion uh at which he is processing it as a as a musical narrative mm-hmm. but that but yet it doesn't feel cold or um, like, uh, I don't know what the, like, it doesn't feel too removed. You can just tell that this is someone who is like scientifically interested in what he can do narratively with an emotion. And there's a very like capital R romantic emotion recollected in tranquility thing to that, that I find very appealing intellectually, while also finding the musicality very appealing emotionally. Yes. And I think that's a very, that's an advanced level um, combination um, and alchemy that he has. Um, This entire album was one that I had on almost constant repeat in the autumn of 2001. The album is Uh, called Poses, for those who do not know. And um, he has the most gorgeous sideburns in pop culture history on the cover he really is like this uh fascinating looking beauty in my opinion Mm -hmm. i also saw him and ben folds yes me too at the prospect park banshell in 2005 in in connecticut in 2004 but still okay yeah (laughs) it was one of the like it was an extremely memorable evening and it was one of those like it was one of those moments where my brother and I like got in a dumb fight basically about it was like one of those ghost in the machine fights where it's just like going back to kid stuff and nothing is even happening that would warrant it. And then we made up immediately and then everyone was like out way too late and we got incredibly drunk on cheap beer and the next morning we had to be in Atlantic City and it was really painful. Um, but I have such fond memories of just being sweaty and having like sibling drama and then having it be resolved. I knew every single song that both artists played. We were all singing along uh, unselfconsciously. It was really a great, uh, really a great evening. And thank you, Mr. Wainwright, for that. And yeah, I just have such strong fond memories from the aughts involving rufus and also enormous respect for his process and Mm. that you can see it and kind of hear it i think that's neat so your excellent insights have now created three points that i need to make a trifecta if you will a trident (laughs) Uh, the first is the the first is to quickly say that i also had a great time seeing him Uh, i took my friend alan for his birthday to see uh, Ben Folds and Rufus Wainwright. And also this band Guster was there, but F them. 
Oh, uh, yeah, Guster. Whatever, who <laughs> needs them? But I remember so clearly that Rufus Wainwright came out in flip-flops for part of his show and was playing the piano while wearing flip-flops, and I was just, like, impressed by that. Oh, yeah. And it was just so good, and Alan and I had a really great time. Then, I will also add, your talk about his interest in craft, I think, is so spot on, and it has... The next albums came out, Want 1 and Want 2. I feel like that became even more apparent because you have songs like The Art Teacher, which is Mm -hmm. this like entire life story of a woman wrapped up in a six-minute song. But I think that it has a lot to do with his um, deep interest in opera, which is always being referenced in his pop music. And he himself has written an opera he's he wrote mm-hmm. an album called songs for lulu that was inspired by an opera like he's he's deeply invested in opera and he's also deeply invested in um sort of grandiose queer performance uh he did an sure. entire album where he recreated judy garland's carnegie hall performance so it's rufus sings judy at carnegie hall and, and it really is like i'm not a huge like judy ologist like i i you know know what most civilians know there are there are parts of that project that are like really upsetting Mm -hmm. um but also as you're getting upset you're like wow this is extremely effective how'd he do that but that's the thing like judy garland honestly like many judy garland was a performer who used the grandiosity of her performing style to communicate a sense of something very raw and vulnerable. And she was able to live in both places at once. That That's place yes. of technical elegance, uh, barely masking sometimes personal tragedy. And mm-hmm. opera really, a lot of opera does that too. You know, you've got these beautifully constructed arias that don't in any way mimic human speech. They don't in any way mimic the way that we live our daily lives, but they are then the pathways to these very real feelings. It's like by making them so grand, they actually become easier to read somehow because yeah, it, it, it's like a way of almost being uh, oblique about your references by making the passion so enormous that you then can be swept up in it. I, I don't Well, often... and also it allows people to talk about it. Yes. Because it's so it's so big that you kind of can't not engage with it. And, and um there's yeah. a that scene in Philadelphia oh, where yeah. he's explaining what's happening in this aria. And um I would say that Denzel Washington should have gotten the Oscar just for his reaction shots to that alone because to watch someone engaging with these huge emotions so like on so many contact points right i mean that whole scene is just like i i kind of am not even wanting to make eye contact with my microphone because it's so awkward and beautiful and that's that's a big part of rufus i think being able to tell stories the way he does yes and so uh, he takes his own life very often and then runs it through an operatic sensibility And what you get are these songs like Cigarettes and Chocolate Milk or one of my personal favorites, Natasha, Mm -hmm. which was written, I believe, about Natasha Lyonne. Oh. And it's like written about the time in her life when she was really self-destructive. And it's this beautiful song about that. And and then um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is his uh, being one of the most prominent and unapologetic male queer artists in pop music history 
Uh, he arrived on the scene in the late 90s when there really were not that many overtly queer men out there making music. And he never went through a, a period where he was coy about it. He was out of the closet from the second his first self-titled album arrived. And in the um, in the summer of 1998, just before I went back to college for my sophomore year of college, my parents read my journal. Uh, they had actually read my journal from my senior year of high school while I was in my freshman year of college. And then they waited six weeks until I got back home after they had read it to confront me with the fact that they knew that I was gay. And it did not go well. They said some really horrible things to me that scarred me for decades and shaped me in ways that are still relevant today, quite honestly. They, uh, we have since patched all of that up and we now have a good relationship and they were full participants in my wedding and everything is great. But at the time it was, it was a nightmare. It was the complete and utter rejection that I had feared, honestly. And, uh, Rufus Wainwright's CD helped me out that summer because he was gay and he wasn't apologizing for it. And he wasn't pretending to be someone else. And he was writing in this really queer way. His music is grandiose and it's openly about men loving other men. And it has all of this like camp and this sort of drag and operatic uh, sensibility. And so it was no accident when in the fall of 98, I asked my friend Jane, who lived in my hometown, to... Uh, ride with me back to campus so that we could start our sophomore year. And Jane was on her way. I knew that. Her parents were coming to drop her off so that I could drive us both back to school. And that's when I told my parents that they had to either choose. They could have a gay son or no son. And I knew that I had given myself an out if they said no son at all because Jane was coming in like 45 minutes and I could just leave. And also there would be another person there and they would have to. we would have to stop screaming at each other. Fortunately, my parents said, well, we want you. We don't want no son at all. Um, and uh, I've actually realized I've just gotten the timing of this story wrong. That was the Christmas of 98 after I had not spoken to them at all during the first semester of my sophomore year. Isn't it funny what the mind does? Anyway, they confronted me about my sexuality in the summer of 98. It was horrible. I went to school for my sophomore year. I didn't speak to them one time in September, October, November, or early December which was the first time I'd ever cut, off, cut them off out of my life, but I just couldn't, I wasn't going to deal with it. Then I went home for Christmas. We didn't talk about my sexuality at all until the last day of Christmas break, and that's when Jane was coming over. And then my parents were like, when I said gay son or no son, they said, we choose a gay son. So I was like, okay. I drove Jane with me back to start our uh, second semester of sophomore year, and on the way down there, we listened to the Rufus Wainwright self-titled album, and I can remember feeling that he was the soundtrack of my return to freedom in college where I could just be myself. And that he was thriving. And I will also add, parents, unless there is like exigent physical peril, don't read your kids shit. Ever. Yeah. Period. Sorry. Like, have they run away and you need to find them and they are minor children? Okay, maybe then you're allowed to look, but only read as far as you need to and then put it back. Yeah. I don't, I understand that it's a loose leaf notebook basically, but it says private, keep out on it. So keep out. Yes. Mom. Oh my God. 
My so true. Still bringing shit up that she she found in my journal from when I was fifteen. Guys, just don't do it. Yeah. So yeah, Rufus Wainwright to me then is a really important marker of a time in my life when I was fighting very hard to get to exist in the world as myself, and uh, his music helped me do that. I would also like to say that I think that he is aware of his role in people's lives mm-hmm. in in that in his purpose but he he wears it easily when he has a great song called gay messiah where he's like i'm not the gay messiah <laughs> yeah I'm sorry but it's actually a, it's like a pleasant little song yeah it is and it, it's it's and i think it's and he's because not, like mad he's yeah. just letting you know like you you know you're gonna have to get out of your own You're going to have to get out of your own shit, I'm afraid. So sorry. But I think that what you said about him wearing it well is correct, because it's not unlike Pharrell Williams. We were talking about Happy last time. Rufus Wainwright is just like, he's just here, he's being himself, and you can participate or not. And that actually is enough. Yeah. Rather than making overt anthems about supporting gay people, as is often the case now, Rufus Wainwright sings from his lived experience as a gay man with specificity, which validates his, and therefore, by extension, all other gay lives. Yeah. And look, if if it were really that uh, burdensome, he would not step to Judy Garland at album length. So. Yeah, that's correct. But he's like, all y'all leave me alone about being gay. And now, an Judy. album Barbara covers, like, <laughs> buddy... <laughs> um, also, Rufus Wainwright released an album called Out of the Game a few years ago. I don't know if you know that one. I don't. Oh, it's so good. And it's got this song on it called Montauk, which is about him now being an old gay married guy with a daughter. And he's singing to his daughter about how her dads are big dorks. <laughs> and eventually she's going to have to be embarrassed to bring someone she loves home to Montauk to see them both puttering around in the yard. Aww. And I just love it so much. Yeah, and so that sort of ties in with um, that Ben Fold song, Gracie, which is like such a sweet song from a dad to his daughter that could tip over into unbearable schmaltz at any moment and yes. never does. And uh, like, you know, I, I sing it to the cats. I sing it to my niece, who is not named Gracie, but you can... You can hack her name to make it sound similar. Like my brother and I used to sing it to my nephew. Um, it's, I mean, it's really a good song. And it's interesting to think about these, the way that these um, two artists sometimes are in conversation with each other without realizing it. Yeah. So. I mean, they really are the perfect pair to have toured together so much because they're both able to get at all of these really deep things in this sidelong way they take different sidelong journeys but they get there in a and it never does feel schmaltzy it feels there's a lot sometimes sometimes it's it's a lot but it's it can be extra without being schmaltzy (laughs) and they like the presence of a piano makes that an even more challenging prospect yes because it would be very easy to tip over into like bruce hornsby like you know (laughs) May the Lord bless and keep mantle and rain yeah. now and forever. But it's it's not a light touch that shit. So <laughs> no, or or like Barry Manilow, you know, he's 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 trying real hard to make us cry, and it's kind of like mm, 
Mm-hmm. And like he's even trying to make himself cry by like plucking a nose hair before asking when he's <laughs> yeah. going to get to hold yeah. us again. Like, <laughs> Barry, you got the uh, gig. Just sing it. It's fine. You know, and and yet when Rufus Wainwright... How have we right, ever talked about Barry Manilow, by the uh, way? Honestly, you every time I think we've talked about everyone, nope, there he is. And there's <laughs> Neil Diamond, too, also just waiting for oh, us, by the way. Yeah, Neil. Uh, I actually like Neil Diamond more than Barry Manilow, but that's neither here nor Same. There. I am, I said. Anyway, sorry, oh, wrong Jesus. episode. Well, that that was unfortunate, but we'll get back to it. Um, I <laughs> feel... so. Rufus Wainwright is someone who is also willing to just say that things suck when they suck. And mm-hmm. that makes me believe him more when he's moved by things. Cause I'm thinking about his song, California, where the whole premise is that he actually hates California. So he's just going to watch golden girls reruns instead uh-huh. while he's visiting. I mean, you can't argue with that. And I won't. <laughs> Do you have any other, um, well, we, I feel like, actually, tell me more about your response specifically to Cigarettes and Chocolate Milk. We've talked about Rufus a lot, but not about this specific song that much. Um, well, I everything that I was talking about, about his scientific remove and all of that stuff, comes out of listening to this song, which I think I actually prefer the reprise mm, version mm-hmm. of it, because it's more... Uh, there's like a more sort of performative rue to to that one, and I I think it's actually just like mixed better. I just I just like it better. It's not a whole lot different, honestly. Um, and you know you gotta love that last note that he holds in the reprieve. Like I I just like it better, but it's also sort of a journey from hearing it for the first time in the album, and then hearing the rest of the album, and then. In comes cigarettes and chocolate milk again, and you're like, "Oh, here we are again!" Like, mm-hmm. I, I see. Um, so, uh, like everything that I said, sort of generally about Rufus, applies to this song specifically, and is why, it, you know, is why I like him and this song. That ability to take two emotional approaches like one is the cigarettes and one is the chocolate milk and like make them go together right though the only thing they might seem to have in common is that they're not that good for you Mm. so yeah i mean this i think this also had to be the song that we picked because it's the most approachably representative and Mm -hmm. sometimes the first thing you think of is like that's correct so and yeah, because this is the perfect balance of lyrically and structurally inventive, but still somehow immediately accessible. Yeah. Because you get to a song like The Art Teacher, for instance, and that song is, you have to have warmed up to The Art Teacher. Right. Or then, then you've got the song Vibrate, which seems to be a song that everyone likes by him, but that I actually don't love that much because I think it's not, it's almost too simple for me. It's like that's too it's too accessible somehow. It's like the the sweet spot of what makes Rufus Wainwright's music so special to me is what's in this song. Uh, yeah, agree. Um and I like Want One and Want Two, but they're a little more um it's a little more like advanced. That's like 300 level Rufus, I would yes. say. It's like, like when Tori Amos like, released um, Boys for Pele, for yeah. instance. Like, that some of it is like, 
you you see what's being attempted, but it's not necessarily like t- striking the same chord, as it were. So, well, yeah. I mean, it's a double album called Want. It, it, that that tells you a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Want. <laughs> I know. Okay. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> right um, on top of that, Rose. Do you have any other Rufus favorites? Uh, every, every other song on this album, honestly, like, uh, and this is one of the few albums that I will still listen to straight through, mm-hmm. um, and not, not feel like I, uh, not feel like I want to skip around or skip mm. over anything because this is very much locked in my, um, locked in my, uh, brain or like my mind's ear as an album experience yes so listening but cigarettes and chocolate milk is one that i can pull out and not feel like i have to like live the whole album again so well and i know that um he didn't write it that his dad loud and white and right the third wrote it but his cover of one man guy on this album is oh, so yeah. great it's i mean it's beautiful it's like a beautiful song about being a complete narcissist. Well yeah. done. Yeah. And really feeling some genuine regret, even though you're a narcissist. Yeah. <laughs> it's oh, like, also, I, I mean, if I were, you know, if it were possible to feel sorry about this, I, I really would. Um, I also love Grey Gardens. I was going to say, in case we needed another uh, middle-aged man's gay signifier. How about opening a song with a quote from the documentary Grey Gardens and then calling the song Grey Gardens? Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and the way he goes into it is almost sheepish, too. Yep. Yeah, like, he's he is not gay in a way that's contemporary. Even no. in the 90s, he was gay in a sort of 1965 uh i'm a contestant on the match game kind of way yes (laughs) lots of uh lots of signifiers he's gay in like a homophile society sort of way Mm -hmm. what was the who am i thinking of the gay guy that was the host paul lind yes (laughs) yes oh my god anyway like but he's not paul lindy at all because paul lind was like I think Paul Lind was maybe doing a Truman Capote imitation sometimes. Right. Like it, it, you know, there's there's a lot in the middle of the last century with that that I am not qualified to really speak on. One thing I do want to note also is that this album, Poses, was produced by a guy named Pierre Marchand, who also worked on the Fumbling Towards Ecstasy album by Sarah McLaughlin. And I think when you know that, you can actually hear the conversation that those two albums are having with one another. There's a certain lushness of production that you can track across both. And I believe that, um, what's her name? The whole bassist is on this album. I think his sister is on this album. Kristen Pfaff? Kristen Pfaff? Is that? uh, No. Aftermar. Oh, Melissa Aftermar. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're not here. She is. I'm looking at the, the Wikipedia entry for this album. You are correct. Indeed. So, Dave, thank you so much for requesting this song and for requesting that we talk about Rufus Wainwright in general. It has been a real treat to just sit and think about why he's so wonderful. It really is. And I think I might just go and 
listen to this album while making lunch. Yeah, honestly, me too. And you know that's a good thing. Like, we've already prepped for the episode. We're already, we've recorded the episode, and I still want more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we want three? <gasps> oh, oh, want three? Boom! Featuring Allison Krauss. <laughs> there it is. can't fool me i saw you when you came out mark and sarah talk about songs is hosted by mark blankenship and sarah debunting and edited by sarah debunting that's me need to talk to mark and sarah about song requests ads or birthday readings email us at talkaboutsongs at gmail.com tweet us at talk songs or find us on facebook at facebook.com slash podcast to become a supporter and producer of the podcast, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mastass. And as always, thank you for listening. What you got in the box only Gracie knows. And I would never try to make you be anything you didn't really want to be, Gracie girl. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.